Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Three, you ready? Yeah. Three, two, one. Hello, and welcome to the Plays the Thing here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined currently by my friend Tim McIntosh. Tim, how's it going? Welcome back to the show. David, welcome you back to the show. (laughs) Yeah. We missed you last week. First, First episode of a close reads property that I've ever, that I've ever missed, I think, as I recall, <clears throat> but you guys, you, t- you guys, turns out you, you did okay without me. You don't, maybe you don't really need me. That's not even true. And you know, it. <laughs> you know, you know that we need you. Let's just, let's just cross that possibility off the uh, list of possibilities. At this point, I feel like we're just gratuitously complimenting each other. Um, <laughs> so uh, our, our friend Matt Bianco is, is off in Alabama. He's working on his, uh, his his thesis right now for his doctoral program, his what do you call it dissertation? His dissertation. And he will be joining us eventually. Uh, so we're we're going to get started here without him a little bit, and then he he'll join in um, in theory. <laughs> so um, <laughs> one of the things that you guys talked about a bunch of stuff last week that we will we'll wait for Matt to get here before yeah, we talk right. about some of that stuff. But one of the things was you mentioned to me off the air was the blasted heath line yes and right. we were talking about how there's a storm coming here and so i was you know i was going to go out and make sure i was prepared for you know all the things that we need and uh you mentioned you know where's it going and i said well actually it looks like it's going to be coming right for us thankfully it looks like we won't get too much wind but they're saying you know nine ten inches of rain could be dumped on us over a couple of days so you said what's well, it's like the blasted heath like you're Concord is going to be the blasted heath or whatever, or exactly how you said it. Yeah. But, you know, that got me thinking about something that Shakespeare does that's really powerful. And I think one of the things that makes him, one of the reasons he stood the test of time, shall we say, yeah. he, ha- he manages to present for our imaginations images of place mm. in a really profound way that I think is rare in place mm. um 
even even when he doesn't give us even without giving us all kinds of stage directions or or in you know instructions about what the the setting should look like and i was thinking it would be fun to take a look at the two main scenes where that take place out on the heath and try to figure out how he manages to do that because i feel like we both probably can have a pretty good visual of what's going on, like what that setting looks like, even though he never once describes it for us. And it's all through yeah. dialogue and it's through, you know, but, he, but he manages to create a setting that is really vivid and even really dramatic if, you know, in some ways. And sure, it's partly because we have an idea of what a heath looks like, right? Like in England, there's the, the sort of windy, wind blown and full of wild plants and things like that. So we get a, we kind of have a general idea of what that is, but he still manages to make it feel dramatic mm-hmm. even in a play. So what do you think of that? You want to look at a couple scenes where that where he does that and see see what he's I'd doing. I'd love to. As a playwright, you can probably offer some perspective on the challenge of of allowing the scene to be dramatic. You know, if you're working on a on a screenplay for example, the whole point is you're going to write in for the for the directors and the actors and the cinematographers yes. and all that. You're going to give description of that kind of stuff because you're going to want um that to be able to be translated to to the screen um but here i mean it's so minimalistic in a sense mm-hmm. in the way shakespeare approaches it but he manages to get that drama across mm-hmm. so i i want i want to hear from you like how does that how does he manage to do that and what like what what is the corresponding challenge that he's managing to sort of overcome when it comes to that so one of the scenes is what scene four no act four scene three is that the one that's on the heath or is that scene, that's scene one is well two, isn't it? scene one is i assume that you're thinking of the one where are you thinking about when well there's also Gloucester, scene act three that's the famous one three two is okay. blow wind crack your cheeks yeah, that's, um, that's the line you quoted to me when you said yeah right okay well then let's go back and look at three two i mean i'm sure i assume this is you know this this is slightly different than what you guys were talking about last week so um yeah the, the scene three um act two let's look you want to look at that one first and then we can look at the one and say yeah compare how it's like maybe he's built maybe the effect is that he's building something together um so why don't you want to read that those lines there from Lear to get us started? Yeah, I will. Um, I'll tell you when I'm done. I won't won't rest necessarily read the whole thing because the clown has a few interjections. Sure, sure. And if I'll you just want to skip, skip something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just skip those. So three two is it just is Lear and the clown, and Lear says, "Blow winds and crack your cheeks. Rage blow." You cataracts and hurricanoes spout till you have drenched our steeples, drowned the cocks. You sulfurous and thought-executing fires, vaunt courier of my oak-cleaving thunderbolts, singe my white head, and thou, all-shaking thunder, strike flat the thick rotundity of the world, crack nature's molds, all Germans spill at once that makes ingrateful man. Uh, nor rain, wind, thunder, fire are my daughters. I tax you not, you elements with unkindness. You never gave your children. You never gave your kingdom, called your children. You owe me no subscription. Then let fall your horrible pleasure. Here I stand, your slave, a poor man, infirm, weak, and despised old man. But yet I call your, you servile ministers. 
that you, that will, with two pernicious daughters, join your high engendered battles against a head so old and white as this. You want to call it call it there? I, yeah, we could go so, on, but we could, yeah. Um, well, and then uh, you know, if you look at. Um, in fact, maybe we should for a second here. If you look at the, well, not the next time he speaks, but line 42. Alas, sir, are you here? Things that love night, love not such love not such nights as these. The wrathful skies gallow the very wanderers of the dark and make them keep their caves. Since I was man, such sheets of fire, such bursts of horrid thunder, such groans of roaring wind and rain, I never remember to have heard. Man's nature cannot carry the affliction nor the fear. Well, that's Kent. Sorry, <laughs> that's Kent. Yeah, that's um, Kent. So, what is he doing here that that it, that allows him to capture sort of the drama of the place to help us kind of get a sense of of it? Like, as you're thinking about it from the from the craftsmanship of creating crafting this scene, what are you noticing that Shakespeare is doing in in that perspective? The first thing that I notice is it's all dialogue. It's no stage directions. Right. Yeah. Um, and so. He does everything by having, he sets us up at the end of two by having Lear and Kent and the fool talk about, hey, Lear's going to go out, daughters, into this massive storm because you've kind of driven him out of the palace. And this old man is going to go face the elements more or less by himself. And we also know through dialogue, it's going to be a horrible storm. So and, he manages to not just create a scene that is self, sort of a self-contained thing, but to create a scene that, that leads into the next scene that gives the audience a sense of anticipation to prepare them for the drama of the next scene. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And from what I know about the Elizabethan stage, it's still going to be in the middle of this storm. It's still going to be a very sparse stage. It's not like a contemporary stage where um, you have all of the kind of like special effects rigging that you could probably at least blow. You could, you could have some sort of hard wind blowing across the stage. I can fully imagine that on a fully furnished contemporary stage. Yeah. Or, or like some stages, with the lights, you could do something with the lights that create thunder or excuse me, create lightning you can create thunder in the background. Now, maybe Shakespeare had the capacity to create thunder in the background. I, I can yeah, imagine drop some, that. Drop some boxes or something? Yeah, something like that. <clears throat> some people wearing like, like a thing that makes him look like a cloud that walks by the back of the stage? <laughs> maybe, maybe. But for the most part, he's really, really limited. He just doesn't ha- have access to the equivalent of CGI like we have today yeah um but i can imagine seeing this scene with the actor playing playing lear i can still imagine imaginatively the audiences are feeling and experiencing a horrendous storm both because of the actor you know the actor perhaps being you know blown about on the stage by his own you know, just by his own physical actions. Um, yeah. But largely just through the language. It's the language that gets across what a climactic 
violent event is happening. Yeah, and I love how specific he is. You know, he doesn't. He starts by saying "blow wind, blow winds, and crack your rage, your cheeks, rage and blow." Um, and he says, "You know, you cataracts and hurricanoes spout." So, like, it's sort of general in that sense. But then all of a sudden, it gets very specific. It gets very particular in a way that the audience probably would have experienced before you know till you have drenched mm-hmm. our steeples um mm-hmm. drown the cocks you sulfur and thought executing fires so these are very very oak cleaving thunderbolts um um there was one other one but anyway you, but you get the point there, there's a very specific thing that the audience will have experienced and understood the idea of drowning the cocks is is um in particular is is kind of interesting. I mean, I think it means weather the weather veins, but but the I think so too. Of you know that much water, that you know that much um, like there's a grandness, kind of an explosiveness that steeples and weather veins. Like if the water is drenching the steeples and the weather the weather veins enough that you're noticing it, it there's a significant thing going on there. Um, it's a significant significant storm. David, I went. I um. My buddy Larry and I, we rafted down the Rogue River. This is probably three years ago, maybe two. Is that in Oregon? In Oregon. And a lot of the Rogue River is in the middle of this giant ravine. So with big, high-reaching cascades on either side. And there's one spot where a lodge has been built that's near the end of the, um, the float. So our tradition is kind of pull the raft out, you go upstairs, you get an ice cream sandwich and then you kind of continue the road. You've got another couple hours until you get to the end. Um, so below this lodge, the lodge is high on this kind of cliff overlooking the river. The river is a, it's a big Western river is the road. So it's typically, mm, man, a hundred feet across between, between 50 and a hundred feet, hundred feet across. And it, and it pushes really, really hard. Below the lodge, they have markers for the major floods of the last century. And there was a marker from, I think, a flood in the 70s that went up almost to the base of the lodge. And so that meant roughly, this is all approximates in my head, a hundred to 150 feet up from the river's current level to get up to the base of the lodge, which when you're up at the lodge looking down at how much water that would mean flowing through that ravine, it's terrifying. It's terrifying because the river itself, especially when you, you know, being on a raft, if there are ever occasions that you are starting to head toward a big boulder, you realize how little muscle power it, it just cannot resist the flow of a river a river is just too too strong and to add atop that another 150 feet of water pulsing through that ravine it's so terrifying so the prospect of um lear calling down enough weather and rainfall to drown the weather veins on top of houses He's asking for a terrifying thing to happen. Yeah. Well, and 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 then in his next part that you read, he ties it back to the drama with his daughter. His daughter. Rumble thy belly full. Thy belly full. Belly full is a much more difficult word to say than it 
feels like it's going to be when you start to open your mouth. Right. Spit fire, spout rain, nor rain, wind, thunder, fire are my daughters. Attacks not you, you elements with unkindness. I never gave you kingdom, called you children. You owe me no subscription. Then let fall your horrible pleasure. Here I stand your slave. You know, all that stuff that you read there. Yeah. Um, the, the, the way he ties the weather itself back to the daughters, back to the drama, I think is so well done by Shakespeare because it, it keeps it from feeling it's increasingly less abstract, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like it's a constant reminder of, of what it is that Lear or why Lear is, is upset, why he would be calling down this weather event. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's not just cursing at the gods, you know, so to speak, but he's, there's a very real personal familial particular very human sort of universal i mean not everyone has this many problems with their kids but we all have this sort of sense of um you know relationships can fall apart and you know right you know we all experience that in some degree or another or if you have kids you know you kind of have that fear that sense you know there's a universal thing that we can at least get a sense of that is tied to this sort of um this sort of universal fear of or experience with weather and through those particular things he's able to you know articulate this really poetic scene which and i mean that's what shakespeare's so good at it's like i mean it's all poetry right it's the particular mm-hmm. expressing something universal and transcendent but he man he the scenes like this are just i think what are why it's lasted yeah it, for me there's something else that is really majestic about this is that Majestic is a good word. Shakespeare is is showing there's kind of like a mirrored relationship between what is happening outside of Lear, the storm, and what is happening inside of Lear, a storm. Yeah. And I mean, I think great movies, great literature, they do. There is a, often our hero, the main character, those two things, the inner world and the outer world, mirror each other. We talked about Casablanca last week, David, Matt, and I did. Casablanca, I think, is a good example of what is happening inside the character of Rick, the main character, and what is happening outside the character of Rick are mirrors of each other. So what I mean is, outside the character, um, the Germans and the French are kind of in, they're both in Rick's bar and the war is going on and the neutral third party or attempted neutrality is Rick. So at that part of the war, the United States having just come out of World War One, is reluctant to get back into a war that they don't consider their own war. Right. And so yeah. there's this feeling in the U.S. populace, there's this feeling inside of Rick, I will stay neutral. I cannot get involved in somebody else's fight. I cannot send all of my young men to face the sort of slaughter that they faced in World War I. I will stay neutral. And then as the, as the movie progresses, Rick comes to this understanding that his kind of cynicism about Ilsa was ill-founded, he ought not remain cynical about the war. And so he gets involved. So what happens inside is also happening outside, just like with Lear, what's happening inside yeah. the war between the daughters, the storm of the daughters is happening outside the storm on the heat. Mm. Well, can we look at, can we look also at, uh, in act four? Yeah. 
Yeah. Because I mean, that's what we're here to talk about anyway, but I wanted to set it up there because I think he sort of, he sort of continues that. And I'd, I'd love to look at what you're talking about there. That sort of the inner turmoil matching mirroring the external turmoil, you know, the, right. the, the scenic turmoil, shall we say, the turmoil yeah. that's within the scene. And I want to see, does he, does he continue that here in act four? So in what ways has Lear's inner turmoil, inner life changed and evolved or other characters, if, if, it, if it, you know, if it works um, and how has the, then the external, the sort of the drama, the place, the setting, right. the action of the scene, how does that, how has that changed as well? Um, let's see. So if we look at, um, was it three that we were talking about? That's three is the blast. Three is blow winds, crack your cheeks. Oh, you're talking about which scene in yeah. four? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it four? Huh. I think it's four, three where Kent is with the gentleman and they're out on the cliffs. Yes, that's right. It's four, and then, three. And then there's four, six is also uh, out on the open country. Mm-hmm. And that's where at Gloucester is saying, just let me die, basically. Right. I, I would love to concentrate on four, six, because we see the beginnings of a resolution of the two major plot things, which are, of course, Lear's rupture from his daughters, but also Gloucester's rupture from Edgar. And both of them, we see both Gloucester and Lear meet each other for the first time since, am I right in saying since um, the first act, I think? Uh, so we I, have think these, I think that's true. Yeah. So what has happened in the meantime between the beginning of the play and... Let me pause you there for a second. 14, we've been, yeah. we've our, our, our third party's here. Matt, what's up? Matty! Hey, guys. How's it going? Good. How's the How are you? Good. How's the writing going? Um, it's a little more belabored than I hoped, but it's going well. That's good. You, you got out of town just Matt, time for. Are you calling in, Matt? Are you calling, calling in? in? Yeah. Yeah. I can hear the um, electric pulse in your voice, <laughs> which which is always <laughs> there, but just especially pronounced right now. <laughs> well, Matt, we, uh, one of the things we've been talking about is we we. We're com- we were looking at that scene in Act Three with the storm, and then we we're looking at how the sort of how how Shakespeare sets up the drama of the scene, um, and and he's able to to make that scene come alive in our imaginations even without the stage directions and all that kind of that kind of thing. And then Tim started talking about how the you know the inner turmoil um, that's going on in Lear matches the setting to the setting's turmoil. And so now we're looking at we just flipped over to. Um, Act four, scene six, and Tim was just talking about how um, this is the first time that um, Gloucester, did you say Gloucester and Edgar had met for the first time since scene one of the play? I think uh, I was thinking Gloucester and Lear. Oh, Gloucester and Lear, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So, con- so continue with that thought because we were going to kind of look at how Shakespeare is doing similar things and how the the um, the inner the inner life of these characters, the inner turmoil, is mirroring what's going on in the settings. So, Act four, scene. Six, uh, it begins with Loster being pulled by Edgar or being led by Edgar to the supposed top of the cliffs of Dover. Now, I, this is so fantastic. It's such a fantastic scene to watch because everything is being set up that this blind man, Gloucester, is being led atop this cliff by Edgar. The audience can see this is not a cliff, but 
of course, Gloucester believes that it is, and Edgar is setting him up to believe it is. So wonderful stagecraft. Gloucester just wants to die. He just wants to leap from the cliff. Let's be put out of his misery. To put him out of his misery. And I, I see such an like clear opportunity. What, what Shakespeare is doing is Gloucester is basically setting up him up for his death and his like resurrection, like in the physical action on the stage where we see Gloucester fall. All he does is just, he just falls forward. Right. But he imagines that he fell the whole way to the bottom of the cliff of Dover. Edgar then acting mad at the top of the cliff scurries back up to his father acting like a stranger that he's never met. And he says, old man, I watched you float down from the cliff. You were as light as a feather, (laughs) as light as, as gossamer. And now here you are and you've survived. Amazing. You've survived this incredible fall. And of course, Gloucester can't believe that he survived the fall. It's like, both comical and extremely poignant at the same time. And they begin talking and it's clear, like Gloucester has undergone this massive internal change because he's died. He thinks that he has, he doesn't think that he's died. He ought to have died. And pushing forward, Edgar he believed he was on the precipice of death. Yeah. Yes. Right. And then he tried to commit suicide and his attempt failed, but now he's been giving a new lease on life. Now, Lear at the same time has weathered this storm. He shows up. The um, Dover is now peaceful after this storm. And we start to see Lear, who is internally completely full of anguish. Everything was stormy. Now, he seems to be regaining his mind again. He's not there yet. Um, he's free of the external storm and even the internal storm is beginning to kind of clear away. And he's saying very sensible things again, after basically an act of an act and a half of just losing his mind. One of the things that I love about what Shakespeare is doing here is he doesn't, in some ways you would expect it almost to be like two different scenes. Like when Lear comes on and all that kind of stuff. But he writes Uh this long scene in the line right before it says, enter Lear. Edgar says, bear free and patient thoughts. Mm -hmm. I I mean, as a cue for Lear to come on, I think it's it's Mm -hmm. so great given where his mental state has been and where, you know, in theory or hopefully, you know, Shakespeare setting up the sort of anticipation for it to, to sort of get cleared up, so to speak bear free and patient thoughts and then Lear enters the stage mad bedecked with weeds <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so like a bit, right, of, right. a bit of dramatic irony going on just in that single line before it yeah he comes on hey before we go on um last week maddie and i were talking about there's a there's a wendell berry book title in this scene in and 4. i told 6. in four six and i told listeners that if they spotted the the title they ought to post it on the close reads facebook page maddie i didn't see anything i didn't see anybody that got it did you see anybody that got it i no, but i haven't been on much this week because of my dissertationing uh, yeah dissertationing, yeah. dissertationing and my lack of internet access yeah I, you is. know in in 
Oh, go ahead. Yeah, you well, I'm just going to reveal what it is. It's in poor Tom slash now Edgar's response when he finds um, Gloucester having fallen. He says, uh, ten masts each made it not the altitude which thou hadst perpeculandurly fell. Thy life's a miracle. Speak yet again. So life's a miracle is uh, one of Wendell Berry's books, and he refers to this this line from from Lear in it. Oh, huh. that's a, nice. that's a great line to be buried in a play as sort of sort of seemingly dark as this, right? As a tragedy. yeah, but the, that little line there, "Life is a miracle" or "Life's a miracle" is a poignant line to be dropped into the middle of 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 a drama that's sort of yes. sorted, if you will. Um, as this one is, and I don't mean sorted like in a sort of offstage sort of way, but just, you know, tragic. Matt, what were yeah. you going to say? Well, I was going to point back to that, the line that you had brought up about the, you know, Edgar saying bear free and patient thoughts and how, you know, the stage direction says that, en- that Lear enters and then mine has it bracketed, but yeah, yeah at yeah. least one edition has, says that he is mad bedecked with weeds. Um, but then, but then in the reading of his lines of Lear's lines, uh, something interesting happens because, you know, first he says, no, they cannot touch me for coining. I am the King himself, which is a very interesting way of Mm, expressing one's kingship and authority. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but then he says, nature's above art in that respect. There's your press money. That fellow handles his bow like a crow keeper. Draw me a clothier's yard. Look, look, a mouse. Peace, peace. This piece of toasted cheese will do it. There's my gauntlet. I'll prove it on a giant. Bring up the brown bills. Oh, well-flown bird. In the cloud, in the cloud, whew, give the word. And that whole, that whole passage right there, that kind of a paragraph, um, smacks of madness, right? It's mm. a very strange thing for him to say a strange way for him to talk and to to express things. But then, and and this goes back to what we were talking about last week, Tim, that, you know, I mentioned, I think last week I mentioned it with Edgar slash Tom, that I wondered how much of what he says that sounds to us like madness, if, if translated from the colloquialisms he's using into, you know, speech that we might use, might actually be more revealing of what he's thinking and doing and Mm -hmm. that he might in a way be testing the people around him and, and communicating something that's truer than, than the mad way in which he's expressing it allows for. And, and, and and I think the same, that is true here. Like if, like in my edition, if I read the notes that, that does kind of, translate the colloquialisms into into speech we might use he's he's saying something about war and about and about you know the, the soldier and, and and the armaments there that um makes sense in in light of the fact that he knows or if he knows what's about to happen Mm. Right, that the that the two sons are at war with each other, that France is uh, is on the move, um, you know that he has that that basically there are there are these kind of conflicting armies, and it's almost like he's preparing for that. 
but right. he's doing it in a way that's mad, right? Right. It's very. I think it goes back to what we were, again, what we were saying last week about how sometimes madness is the only way these characters can perceive mm-hmm. truths more deeply. Mm-hmm. In, in the same way that blindness is the only way they can really see, mm-hmm. madness is the only way they can really know. Well, did you connect that to the idea of like the fool? How the how fools are often the ones who are speaking the wisdom. Yeah, in Shakespeare yeah. plays. Yeah, the ones who. Maddie, I think. I think what you're. I think if we did understand the colloquialisms, I think we would better understand. Yeah, that. What sounds like, just rapid broken speech moving from subject to subject, might if we were a little bit more comfortable with the language sound kind of like a that Lear is painting a mosaic that shows that he is moving toward my reading is that he's moving out of sanity toward sanity it reads insane yeah but I think that there's more going on here that shows and I think there's some clear lines um that that show that he's moving back toward sanity and he's moving back toward an understanding of what his place in the universe is, what his situation is now having done wrong to Cordelia, having given away his, you know, all the things that he did wrong in the first two acts. I think we have indications that he is starting to accept that he's the perpetrator, not just the victim, certainly a victim, but also the perpetrator. Is it just me or is he also, is the way his lines are written evolving in this scene how so, so david well if, i mean if you look at the the sort of poetic formal structures of them nature's above art in that respect mm. there's your press money that fellow handles his bow like a crow keeper you know there's a sort of lack of poetry and there's like yeah it's much more of the blank the blank verse type thing but then if you look at even then his next line starting with line 96 other than you know, 994 when he just says pass. It's sort of in that same vein. But then look at the next line when he's at 108. I, every inch a king, when I do stare, see how the subject quakes. And even the way it looks on the page is different, right? I pardon that. Yeah. What was thy cause? I mean, it seems like he's the iambic pentameter, I, the iambic pentameter, the way the syllables are stressed and the way Shakespeare's uh, structuring the lines, the verse is in certain instances um, a little bit more poetic and a little bit less blank. So I wonder mm. if those lines, I, I haven't ever done a study on this. I'm just thinking of it now. I'm wondering if the lines that are in a little bit more of the iambic pentameter are symbolic of maybe more sanity or, or like, or at least perhaps um, him being a little bit more um, in control of his language. Maybe. maybe he's yes. Like, right. You know, that's fascinating because if you go back to act four, scene two, you see the same thing. If you compare scene two with scene six, the same thing is true of Edgar. When Edgar's, when Edgar's mad, four, two, like, four, if you look four, at, two? actually it's four, one, four, one, like line, line around line 60 in act four, scene one, mm. it's, you know, it's a, it's a paragraph. It's a narrative there. Right. But read the lines. 
both style and gait, horseway and footpath, poor Tom hath been scared out of his good wits. Bless thee, good man, son, from the foul fiend. Five fiends have been in poor Tom at once yeah. of lust as a bit, you know, and so on. Um, but then in in scene six, it's back to the to the to the poetic form, right? There's there there's um the rhythm you know, meter to it yeah, and rhythm, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. Um and even in when he in that part where I, I pointed out that there is more meter to it and and the iambic pentameter at least is more obviously back i think i haven't like i said i haven't gone through and you know looked at each of the stressed unstressed all the different you know all the different things there but um it, the other ones are pretty clearly I, I mean someone's gonna call me on this but i'm pretty sure that that's just shakespearean blank verse right those first few those first few times he's speaking, you know, in, in action. Where, David? Where are you talking like about? Like he says, ha, Goneril with a white beard, and then the stuff that you just read a minute ago, nature, uh, nature's above art in that respect. Like, that looks like... I mean, anyway, it's, I'm pretty sure that's not a pentameter. Um, but again, I'm doing this on the fly here. Um, but then this bit here, where it starts with, I, every inch a king, you know, Gloucester says, it's not the king. He says, mm. Gloucester's like, I, that's a, I know that voice. He's not the king. And Lear says, I, every inch a king. And then he gets into this whole thing. He starts talking about his daughters and there seems to be a sort of precision in it. He seems to recognize what's going on. It seems like there's something of a, almost even a strategy. And then at the end of it, look at lines 128 through 131. Oh yeah. So down from the waist, they are centaurs, the women all Mm -hmm. all above, but to the girdle, Mm -hmm. the gods inherit beneath is all the fiends. Full stop. There's hell, there's darkness, there's the sulfurous pit, burning, scalding, stench, consumption, fi, 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 pa, pa, give me an ounce of this. And so there's this like, like almost like the rage overcomes him and he no longer has yeah. control over the lines that he's saying. Yeah. Yeah, he's more, he's being perhaps more rational in the first part. And then, and then he, he when he starts describing his daughters again, he, he loses it. Yeah. And the passion, the passion overcomes him and he just, Oh wow! You That's know, good, David. But then again, that like that goes back to what Tim's saying, though, right? Like how Shakespeare manages to mirror the internal with the ex- external. So on the one hand, he can mirror the the internal turmoil of Lear with the turmoil of what's going on in the scene, right? But he can right. also mirror that internal turmoil with the language itself. And so the, the way that we're hearing it, the, you know, I think our ears are subconscious, at least if you were to see this on stage, would recognize the change in the way the, the, the lines are being delivered. So I think, you know, it mirrors kind of what you're saying. That sort of objective, poetic objective correlative. Yeah. I think there's, there's, I completely agree with you, David. I think that there's something about, the the broken meter that is that conveys to us Lear is kind of sliding in and out of reality and that broken meter is telling us in addition to the words that he's using that Lear is broken his mental capacities are broken and I'm just to press it a little bit farther there's a couple of types of insanity, it seems to me. Or the way, there's a couple of ways in which insanity manifests itself through language. One of them, I would argue, is Edmund is, has an insanity of a certain type, Edmund the Bastard. And it is a very logical, 
it's very ordered, but it is sort of, um, it is a very, it's a narrowing of reality. And then Lear's insanity and maybe poor Tom's insanity is of a, it's not a narrowed nature, it's a broken nature. And that broken nature manifests itself in broken sentences. I mean, sentences are many sentences, not all, are an attempt to kind of make a picture of the world. So you've got a subject and you've got a verb and you've got a direct um, object, which is kind of maybe the most common sentence. So subject, uh, my daughter's verb, abused, direct object, me. There's a little picture of the world. And when those pictures of the world begin to shatter, then of course, the sentences that we use, the language that we use will also shatter. And so we see it in the prose, just like you're saying, David, we see these fractured, incomplete thoughts that kind of just all come out like a tumble. But I think that we'll see at the end of four and going on into five, for Lear, those sentences are going to begin to come back together into full narrative trains, actual pictures of the world again. Hmm. Just to clarify, almost all Shakespeare is written in blank verse. I mean, it's just iambic blank verse. So I think what's happening here is it's not so much that he's going into the blank verse, it's that he's going into um, more of a prose, prosody style. So it's like, you know, it goes from sort of formal, controlled elements of the iambic pentameter that's the, the blank first iambic pentameter where where the meter is really controlled and and then he's going into the more prose you know it's more like the way we it's like the way people speak there's i think the idea of le, the it's less controlled is 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 a really you know big part of that but i want to just clarify <laughs> David, it might be I, helpful just to point out um the difference on the page for readers so while we're in act four um yeah like i think 4.6, you can see the difference just through lines 124 to lines 131. Or you can see it in the lines 997, 96 through 105. And then you can see the very the difference between that and 108 through 123. The, the editors, typically, when it's iambic pentameter, you will have a ragged edge yep. on the right-hand side of what's being spoken. And I mean, this is the this is the easy way to find out whether or not it's iambic pentameter. You just count to see if it matches the syllable. So, to be or not to be, that is the question. Eleven syllables. Every second syllable accented. Right now, sometimes he'll play with that second syllable, and it's not right, necessarily right. accented. But that's that is. But you can see that there's the a norm. control. There's like a precision to it. Right, and the non-iambic pentameter. The it's not a ragged edge on the right side of but what's yeah, it's being fully spoken. Justified. It's a, right, it's fully justified both left and right. That's typically the way that editors of Shakespeare show what they think is um, the type of prose that's being used. Hey, in other plays like Hamlet, for example, you just mentioned to be or not to be. How does he exp when people speak when they're going mad, like Ophelia, for example? How, yeah. is she, how does she speak? Is she speaking in prose or is she speaking in the iambic pentameter verse? You know, we brought this up. Songs? I, I think, I, I would love to turn back and look at when she is with, when um, Ophelia is with the king and the queen and her brother 
that's the, that's her mad scene. You guys want to just pause and go back and look at it? Do you guys have an, have access to Hamlet? I don't have access on. I do not right here. You can look it up if you want, man. I can blabber for a minute. I will say that in if you look at um, what is it like uh, in scene three, act three of this three point two, it looks like something similar is happening there. I'm trying to find it. I lost it. If you look at three two, I can't. I can't remember any particular examples, but I think that there's also a situation in some plays where certain certain characters always speak in iambic pentameter and other characters always speak in prose. Mm. I want to say that that's the case in The Tempest mm. where uh. Prospero always speaks in iambic pentameter but the um what's that guy's name the the one that's always messing with the daughter oh right I, yeah. I think caliban always speaks in prose but that 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 that, that, that particular example might not hold true but there are some plays where there are character distinctions like that where it's like the more human character speaks in pentameter and the the less human character speaks in prose or the higher class character speaks in poetic form and the lower class characters speak in prose so ophelia i think it might be nice to just touch on her the two big scenes for ophelia and hamlet are her meeting one-on-one with hamlet and her lines begin in iambic pentameter and their iambic pentameter um, throughout her speaking with Hamlet. So it begins, my honored Lord, you know, right well, you did new line. And with them words of so sweet breath composed new line as made things more rich, their perfume lost new line. So it is a ragged right edge. But now what's really interesting, her other big scene is after, after, her father has been killed by Hamlet. She's going mad if she's not completely mad. And it's a mix between mostly song and non-iambic pentameter, the blank verse. So that would be act, five, act four, scene five. So she goes back and forth between song, which is, of course, metered, and lines like, I hope all will be well. We must be patient, but I cannot choose but weep to think that they would lay him in the cold ground and it's right justified. It's not iambic pentameter. So she goes back and forth. Hmm. In her hmm. in her madness, she goes back and forth. In her sanity, she you know, seems to stick with iambic pentameter. I have a I have a book that I cannot remember the name of the of the, the title of the book nor the name of the author, but I have a book at home where the author argues that human beings always speak in a poetic diction Hmm. that, that, um, that there's always, there's always a rhythm to the way we speak that has some sort of meter built into it, some sort of, Hmm. um, rhythm built into it that, that if, if we were not, he, 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 he makes the analogy that it's like walking. 
that there's a that there's a rhythm to the way we walk hmm. and an intention to the way we walk, and that that's true of how we speak, and that and that to walk with that rhythm would be to stumble like a drunk, and to speak without that rhythm would be to speak like a drunk. Huh. Um, and so, and so, it, it could be that that Shakespeare is writing like kind of in, in, in light of how, what this guy is arguing that, that when people are the, the most human, they are, they naturally speak in a poetic uh-huh. fiction. And when they are least human, they do not speak in a poetic fiction. When they're, when they're overcome by their passions, when they're overcome by madness, when they're overcome by ignorance, um, whatever, you know, whatever it is that's making them less human, uh, is when they, when they stutter and stumble pros, prosaically rather than poetically. <laughs> Prosa, is that the right word there? Pro, promid, promily? Anyways. <laughs> Pros, I mean. Prosody? Yeah. Prosody? Well, it's funny. I, I totally buy that argument, the hook on and sinker. And I was even listening to you speak as you're describing it, Matt. And there's a poetry to your voice. There's a ba-dump, 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 bump, ba-dump, 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 ba-dump. And part of that is just the habit of signaling to David and I, here comes the beginning of this new sentence. Here's the end of that sentence. Here's the beginning of a new sentence. Here's, part of it is just that. But I think there's something even more going on. It's not just a practical, it's not just a practical purpose of speaking with that rhythm, right? Well, that, but even that, the signaling that you're doing in the way that you speak is a sort of like method. It's like a sort of control, which I think mm. is one of the things that Shakespeare is sort of getting at. It's like when the characters don't speak with that control, they're mad. It's indicative of their sort of inner right. turmoil of their madness. So when Matt's doing that, it's sort of a learned, acquired, you know, sort of way of um, not controlling the situation, but 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 like there's a rhetorical element going on there. That yeah, like it's yeah. just sort of a subconscious thing for both of us, right? We're not like, oh, Matt's giving us a clue here, and he's not like, I've got to give a clue here. But there's a sort of muscle memory in the mm-hmm. way that, the way that we interact with one another that um, that I think is at play. So th- it would be fascinating to go through the whole play or any play in this way, but just as a just as an example of what we're discussing. In Act One, Scene One, when Goneril and Regan Reagan are trying to appeal to their father with uh-huh. their, with expressions of their love, they speak in poem. When their father leaves them and they're and they're consorting with one another about how they're going to deal with him at the very end of Scene One, Act One, Scene One, they speak in prose. Huh. When Edmund is speaking about his plans, he speaks in poetic diction. When he's deceiving Gloucester into thinking that that Edgar is a conspirator, he speaks in prose. Mm. And when Gloucester's being deceived, he speaks in prose. Mm. All through Act Two, Act One, Scene Two. I, yeah, this this, I, <laughs> this is very interesting. What do you, what, so? What do you make of that, Matt? Do you think can you draw a conclusion? Or a the, the only conclusion. Yeah, that's true. The hypothesis is better, or theory, or something. But yeah. the only the only thing that the only hypothesis that I'm drawn toward is is kind of what what that author was saying that that when we are at our most human, when we're doing human things, 
in the in the in the in accordance with how we were created to be, we are we are or or maybe maybe David's way of saying it is better. When we are most at control of ourselves, especially with regard to the right thing, we speak poetically. Yeah. But when we are when we are when we have lost control of ourselves or we are um doing something that's inappropriate to our to our created natures then we speak in prose hmm. that's really you hear how i lost i lost my own rhythm at the end there because i was losing control of my thoughts <laughs> so then we speak in prose <laughs> i mean i seriously i think there's something so there's something really profound, I think, about what you're observing that I'm thinking about a conversation that I had yesterday with a student. And I noticed the first thing I noticed, he had to speak to me privately about something and he had to ask me something. And I know he was terrified to ask me. And his speech was not poetic. It was Mr. Mac, I have a, I've got something to ask you. I, yeah. I need to know. And, and so it was full of these halts um, because he, because he was scared, he was tight. He wasn't loose. And I think part of speaking with the natural rhythm, when you have confidence, when you are at ease about what you want to ask, it flows, doesn't it? That, that that natural cadence, just when you're with your friends and you're talking about something that brings you joy and that brings them joy, there's just this natural kind of flowing of the water over rock, this natural, beautiful rhythm that just happens. But when you're not and your heart is being hard and your hands are clammy, it there is a, a, a hesitation. And we miss that poetry for a, for a reason other than madness is because we're afraid. Huh. Yeah. Fear. Fear is a sort of madness, right? Yeah, it's like a it's a madness of rigidity, you know. Anyway, like I'm starting to get into like medieval um parsing of types of madness. <laughs> Maybe we should like move back to the text. <laughs> well, you see it like if you look at well, the end. I, Go ahead. I was gonna I was gonna rewind if I could kind of back to before we started talking about this um to something that tim had said but if you have more to comment on this idea then all i was going to do is point out that at the end of 4.6 when edgar's reading goneril's letter the part where he's thinking like where he says sit you down father rest you i mean this is after he's what has he killed oswald um after that he re- he says his little part there, and then when he reads the letter, the letter is in prose, and then he goes back, and his reflections on the letter are in are in the iambic again. It's just another example mm-hmm. of how maybe the the conniving portion there, Goneril's letter is is in prose, and it's not surprising that the letter itself is in prose, but it's an example of something involving like conniving being done in in prose in this play, and right before, oh, yeah. and then Edgar right before they fight when he's sort of pretending to be mad again and he's saying he's speaking in that weird dialect that's mm. all that's all in prose again but then mm. right right after that and before that he's still able to speak in 
in the iambic so it seems like he's being very purposeful with oswald there when he jumps in and playing that role as someone who speaks the prose but that yeah. anyway that let's go back what we, let's go back to what you were going to say what you were wanted to talk about um okay so we just had to take a break there for a second because matt had some connection issues so he's calling back in on the phone now so matt you were you were in the middle of saying something so take it away yeah, so, okay, so I was, I was trying to say that, you know, Tim had talked about the Lear's kind of movement back and forth between sanity and insanity might be indicative of his moving back and forth between seeing himself as the victim and as the guilty party. Um, and, and and I think you even said, like, which is not to say he wasn't the victim, but that, but that he's not emphasizing that it's as much now as he is beginning to emphasize his own role in the situation. And what, what struck me when you said that is, I think you're right. I think Act 4 does give indication that, that, that really, I think, began earlier. But in Act 4, we do see that indication of Lear beginning to acknowledge more responsibility for the situation. But simultaneously, I think we begin to see Shakespeare telling us that at the same time Lear is starting to acknowledge responsibility and guilt, Shakespeare is starting to show us Goneril and Reagan's responsibility and guilt. Whereas before, early on, we weren't always sure who was in the right and who was wrong. Act 4 seems to give us more and more evidence that Goneril and Reagan are monsters. Hmm. I can say it that boldly, right? If if Act like, Three didn't give us enough with Reagan, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. But now but I mean, Goneril, like, there's no like, question anymore. You're right. Yeah, because the letter that you that you mentioned, David, is an example of that. But the whole conversation, like Albany himself, turns against Goneril, and and, yeah. and actually puts forth his own army to fight against them, right? Right. Um, ch- changing sides and, and joining, basically joining forces with either Lear or with France or whatever. Um, and, and I remember, I remember early on, there's a passage where Albany says to Goneril, I think you're misjudging, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, I think you're misjudging the situation. And Goneril responds, you're being too soft. I know my father. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and I always read that as Goneril being a little bit arrogant and perhaps not, not being um, as slow to judge as she ought to have been. But then, but then on, the, on the Close Reads group, there was a conversation about this. Who is right? Was Albany right or was Goneril right? But now it appears that Albany was right, in this act anyways, right? That, that Albany has seen the true nature of Goneril uh-huh. and that, and that Lear was in, was not, um, you know, as dastardly as she was proclaiming. Um, and then you see well, that with her interactions between Edgar with, or with, with Albany, Edmund, and then what Reagan tells us about her, her relationship with Oswald. Hmm. Well, I mean, Albany specifically says, right. He says to her wisdom and goodness to the vile seem vile filth mm-hmm. savor but themselves and then he says what mm-hmm. have you done 
Tigers, not daughters, what have you performed? A father and a gracious aged man whose reverence even the head-lugged bear would lick. Most barbarous, most degenerate, have you matted? And so he's recognized, and then she just calls him a coward, right? And he talks about the idea of, of he's talking about humanity, he's talking about honor, he's talking about things like that. And she basically you know, says, you're just a coward. Um, where's your army? Um, mm-hmm. She calls him a moralizer, essentially. Um, and then, he, and then he, <laughs> right. says her, he says to her, I mean, this is one of the most, I don't know, this is one of the most profound lines to me in the whole play where Albany says to his wife, he recognizes her, he's recognizing what's going on in her and he says, see thyself, devil. Mm-hmm. Like she, mm-hmm. proper deformity seems not in the fiend so horrid as in woman. And then, he, and then she says, oh, vain mm-hmm. fool. But he's saying, see thyself, devil. He, she doesn't recognize her true self or if she does, she doesn't care. Right. And then she yeah, like, even says, however, however thou art a fiend, a woman's shape does shield thee. So even in right. being able to declare that she is the devil, he's still an honorable enough person to say, but I can't strike you because I'm a man and you're a woman, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, she's going to turn to Edmund, who she sees as he's, he's a real man. He doesn't know where about that honor stuff. He takes what he wants. Yeah. A side note, I think it's interesting that the same when Macbeth is having doubts about killing the king, Lady Macbeth comes to him and basically insults his manhood. She says, you know, like, when you promised me that you would do it, then you were a man. And if you durst do it, so much more than a man. But she plays on this, um, she calls him a coward and lacking manhood when he is thinking to himself, it's not right for me to kill the king. So I think that's an interesting that Goneril plays that same note. Mm. And then at the end of the scene two, 4.2, you know, he, he's talking to the messenger, Goneril leaves and Albany says, Gloucester, I live to thank thee for the love thou showedst the king and to revenge thine eyes. Come hither, friend, tell me what more thou knowest. He's talking to the messenger there. So he basically says, I'm going to, I've got to, I've got, you know, he had, he's got honor on, on his mind, right? He's got to revenge, revenge Gluster's eyes. And, and, but he says, I live to thank thee for the love thou showedst the king. Like for Albany, the idea of like relationships properly, properly ordered is a really big thing for him. Mm. Um, even if you don't think the king is great, it seems, or the best king ever, it seems like out for Albany, the idea of, of place of proper place of things being right, right. of respecting the right. role of a king is something that's meaningful to him um, and so he's not just going to support the king but he's now going to act to revenge somebody who's suffering because they supported the king and even if that means the cost of his own like losing his own wife who's he's pretty clearly sees her for who she is yeah well his his description of the king as a gracious aged man whose reverence even the head, head legged bear would lick. Um, and, and, and then, and then throughout, you know, just references to him being a good King, a kind King, um, a reverence King, gracious King. There seems to be this kind of movement toward people 
beginning to recognize that the king was was either either temporarily foolish or or even perhaps played by his daughters. There, there's an interesting passage in scene six that I don't know that it proves anything, but it, it struck a chord with me as I was reading it. Um, line 96, Lear says, I think you actually read this earlier, David, or part of it. He says, down a rail with a white beard. They flattered me like a dog and told me I had the white hairs in my beard ere the black ones were there to say I and no to everything that I said. I and no too was no good divinity. And he goes on. And I, I don't know exactly what he's referring to here, but I wonder if this is a reference, if Lear is making a reference to the fact, like in, in scene, act one, scene one, Lear starts out by telling us that he's too old to be the king, right? And that he's going to pass this off to them so that he can, you know, go off into old age without all this burden or something, right? I'm paraphrasing badly. Um, but, but here, is he telling us that the reason he believed that is because they had been telling him that first beforehand? That mm. he convinced, they convinced him that he had white hairs in his beard when they were still black? That the they're the one that convinced him that he was old and senile and put him in this place where he had to divvy up the kingdom or did he believe that he had to divvy up the kingdom? Like does the conspiracy go back further than just the the division of the kingdom? Yeah. Huh. I don't know if I have the evidence for that apart right. from those lines, but but there could be like we were speculating last week and that uh, you know, some of the reasons why Lear might have been so foolish. Right. right, I, you right. Know, I brought up I brought up Ivan the Terrible and, you know, perhaps the loss of his wife or something, but mm-hmm. what if the daughters were manipulating him all that time and and convincing him that he was going mad or senile that caused yeah. the decision. And that line there might be a reference to that. The stretch, but it might be. I think it's really fascinating that Shakespeare does not start the play by giving us the backstory of whether or not he was a good king or a bad king. I think there's plenty of evidence, like we talked about last week, Maddie, yeah. that he was he was a kind man. Um, but there's just so much backstory that we only get in shreds as the play progresses, and we can kind of try to patch together what had happened before the play to cause the king to act so with such madness so rashly. I think that one of the things that's interesting to think about though is, I mean, should no matter how his daughters or matter how his daughters saw him or if he acted unjustly to them, I mean, was, was their behavior, was their approach still the proper, proper one? Like, I think that's still a question that's worth, yeah. worth debating i mean and that, oh, i think yeah, that's what yeah. Al, that's with albany's looking at it and he's saying i don't really care what you feel like you experienced like this is still wrong um and then even when you get like we get that scene right in the middle of scene 4.4 it's right in the middle of act four like based on the lines i believe and that's where cordelia comes back with the jet with the doctor right yeah um, and um you know it, 
I, I'm, I wonder, I would be curious to know where you guys like, um, how to put this. We got to, we got to wrap this up here. So as far as final thoughts go, I'm very curious to see, to, to hear what you guys think about how it's set up with Cordelia at the end of act four. Um, she's only in the one scene. She's not even in this play very mm -hmm. much, but she has mm -hmm. this sort of reputation. She's such a well-known character. Um, what, what's going on here? Like, what, what do you, what do you make of how Shakespeare is setting up the Cordelia part of this going into the final act, despite her sort of relative lack of lines? I see her as being, yeah, I see her as being still being loyal to the king. I mean, she has that line to the messenger, or maybe it's to Kent, that she considers herself to still be doing the king's business. Do you remember? You guys remember that line? Oh, I wish I could find oh. it. When she's talking to him, I think she's talking to Kent. And she says that Kent ought to go reassure the king that she, Cordelia, is still doing his business, is about his business when she's with this army that's in his land. Oh, I wish you could find the line. If I had time, I could find it. But I, I, I see Shakespeare as setting her up to still be the same woman that we saw that was treated so wrongly, who loves the king, um, who couldn't heave her heart into her mouth, but she's still loyal to the king. And we still want to see them reunited. Yeah. yeah. What well, do you think, Maddie? I see her as a kind of, as a, well, basically as a foil to everybody else, right? Like she's the, kind of a steadfast, honorable character. She's an absentee foil for the most part, but she's a foil where, you know, she represents the, the best of humanity. Everybody else is, you know, some sad variation on it. Um, what, what interests me, especially about scene seven though, is that, you know, as you mentioned, she's committed to doing the, the King's work She's committed to remaining loyal to him mm. as a subject, but also as a daughter, right? She still mm -hmm. loves him no matter, no matter what happened, you know, four acts ago, when that matters, she, she's still his daughter. She's still his subject. And then, and then there's this fascinating scene where, you know, Lear has awoken. They're having a conversation. He comes to realize who she is. And he says, be your tears wet. Yes, babe. Mm. I pray, weep not. If you have poison for me, I will drink it. Yeah. I know you do not love me. For your sisters have, as I do remember, done me wrong. You have some cause. They have not. Now, there, there is, is the most explicit statement of his repentance, right? Yes. And Cordelia responds, no cause, no cause. And almost like she's saying, she's either saying, no, don't worry about it. It's all water under the bridge. It's all forgiven. I love you. Be my father and my king. Or, or she's saying, or perhaps both, she's saying, no, I played some part in this too. And therefore I have no cause. 
Um, I one there's a little subtle thing going on right there too, where right after that line, Lear says, "Am I in France?" And then Kent says, "In your own kingdom, sir," which I think is is a really interesting. Yeah. Like not there, it comes back to the idea that it's his kingdom that yeah that he's sitting in. Like they're not. She's. It's just a reminder that she and Kent are not trying to take it away from him. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think I cut you well, off. It kind of broke up for me. Oh, sorry. No. Well, and then just the one last note is that right before he, as he's finding out, the way in which he finds out that she's Cordelia is when he says, "For as I am a man." I think this lady to be my child, Cordelia. And she says, mm. and so I am, I am. And she says it emotionally, right? There's, I mean, he gives us exclamation points for God's sake. Um, but he says, my child, Cordelia. Mm. That's not how their relationship ended at the, at the end of Act 1 scene one. Mm. He was, she was she not, was his, not child. his child anymore. No. No. Yeah, he was cursing. He yeah. He receives her by saying, by referring to her as my child. And she embraced that, that role. And then he repents, you know, he sees her tears. After my, he, deserves, he deserves to die at her hand. Drink the poisonous cup, you know. Oh, love it. I know. That, that, oh scene, my is, gosh. that scene is heart-wrenching for me. Heart-wrenching. Gloucester's eyes being plucked out. <laughs> She gets my heart wrenching. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Going back to some of the things we were talking about earlier, if you look at if you look at that scene, a lot of her language, even between so between that and scene four, I think it is, a lot of her language is about the idea of like how we make judgments of things, right? So she says, "Be governed by your knowledge." This is line twenty. Be governed by your knowledge and proceed in the sway of your own will. In other words, like how you, how you see fit. So like take stock of this. Be be make a wise judgment. Um, so. So for her, like there's so much of her language is about um, is about that wisdom as opposed to everyone else, you know, is trying to, it's like about power and it's about just dictating terms. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think, was it in four where she says, no blown ambition doth our arms incite, but love, dear love, and our aged father's right. Um, so that she's driven by... She's driven by, you know, her love for her father. And that's the, that, those are the things that guide her decision-making, whereas everyone else, mm-hmm. you know, it's blind ambition. Um, and then that you see that because in her willingness, her, her desire to repair the relationships that her sisters in part have demolished. And yeah. she uses the word repair multiple times throughout scene seven. She, said, she refers to him as having an abusive nature and being a child-changed father. Hmm. Hmm. It's it's so interesting how she assesses his situation, and then how the sisters do, but also yeah. how he has changed his own assessment of his situation throughout. Right, and I think it's appropriate for Lear to acknowledge responsibility and guilt, but I think it's also appropriate to see the responsibility and guilt that the other parties have as well. You know, right, right. This is a beautiful story. Man, I- I love it's how- such a beautiful story. Sorry, David. I, I read that as sort of, I mean, you guys have relationships in which you have to go to someone, you have to apologize for something that you've done or said. And the response from the other person, like what you want is the response from Cordelia. I read Cordelia's response, like no need to apologize. It's not like 
yeah, mm-hmm. you didn't do anything wrong, but as the reunion has melted that wrong away in my mind, I'm not yeah. holding it against you. And then you've gone to people, I've gone to people who are like gonorrhea and apologizing to them. It's going to be used as a weapon against you. The apology will eventually be used as a weapon against you, which is not a reason to not apologize. The apology right. should still happen. She'll, she'll but, view you as weak. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> Milk-livered man. <laughs> One thing I love about Cordelia in this scene is that line, oh, my dear father, restoration, he's asleep here, restoration hang thy medicine on my lips and let mm. this kiss repair those violent harms that my two sisters have in thy reverence made. Um, I, I even like the idea of, you know, like there's a sleeping beauty thing going on here, right? Like the, the kiss wakes, wakes up the dead girl, right? In, in, in sleeping. Yeah. Beauty, right? Yeah. Or in, yeah. Sleeping beauty. Um, yeah. But here it's the daughter's, the daughter's kiss is a, is sort of an active, like there's sort of a magical, um, restoration, like a ma- of repair that is sort of supernatural or magical that's done by her by her kissing her father. Yeah, yeah. While music is being played, by the way. <laughs> anyway, right. we should wrap this up. Any you guys want to add anything else or we just wait till after? I'm good. All right. I know, Tim, you got to go teach or something, right? I do. All right. We'll let you go. Matt, thanks for taking the time away from your dissertation. Good luck with your writing. Thank you. Appreciate it. For Tim and for Matt, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening to The Plays The Thing. We will be back next week with our discussion of Act 5. Don't forget to check out The Daily Poem, to check out the Close Reads uh, conversation on Crossing to Safety. And if you are in the line of fire on this hurricane, uh, stay safe, stay dry, and uh, hopefully podcasts like this can help you pass the time. Uh, yeah. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.